0: You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and we have another fabulous, fabulous guest. Today, we are going to be speaking with Sarah Noel-Wilson, who is on a mission to help leaders build and rebuild teams. Her goal is to empower leaders to understand and honor the beautiful complexity of the humans they serve. Through her work as an executive coach, keynote speaker, researcher, and author, she helps leaders close the gap between what they intend to do, and the actual impact they make. Her new book is called Don't Feed the Elephants, Overcoming the Art of Avoidance to Build Powerful Partnerships. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so, so happy to be having this conversation. You know, if you look at our Instagrams, you'll hear, see both of us saying that we're on a mission to humanize work. We are soul mm-hmm. sisters when it comes to mm-hmm. this work we're doing in the world and I want to give you an opportunity as a starting point Sarah tell us a little bit around how you got here why what brought you into this work and why does it matter so much to you
1: I'm trying to think of the quickest way to to do this so here's the here's the uh uh uh, abridged version unabridged abridged what's the (laughs) um I, I started in theater performance, theater education. That was my undergraduate degree. And I did what uh, moved to Des Moines, chased a boy that worked out um, and did what every good person did in Des Moines, got a job in insurance. And I am um, in Des Moines, Iowa, for those of you who are listening internationally um, and became really interested in the dynamic uh, between the manager and team members. Um so much of my work from theater was like exploring people, understanding people and, and self-awareness and realizing that in the workplace, I had the opportunity to work for amazing leaders and I had the opportunity to work for very harmful leaders. And so how could we increase the likelihood that we could have people show up more powerfully? And so that led a journey of managing as many different types of teams as I could to getting my master's in leadership development. But the, the, this particular work related to the elephants was because I had the very real realization that I had never experienced a relationship or a team where we could talk about the hard stuff. You know, I would read stories about how to have difficult conversations. I, one of, one of the core philosophies that anchors a lot of our work comes from adaptive leadership. And this idea that adapt, truly adaptive cultures is one where the elephant can be called out. And I realized I had never experienced that. And I was like, can that even exist? <laughs> Does it? And I realized part of the reason I didn't experience it is because I didn't know how to have those conversations. And I was, I was masterful at avoiding. And so that's, that's a little bit about my journey.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love one of the stories. Maybe even start sharing one of your stories in terms of you being a, an avoider and recognizing that, oh, okay, maybe I have some work to do here first. What was that like? Of someone who's used to being the avoider to start showing up in a different way, what was that like?
1: It's still hard. It's, it's still, it's still difficult, even, you know, sometimes when I'm struggling with a situation, you know, I'll sit in my kitchen and my husband will walk in and sometimes he's, he'll just be smart with me a little bit. He's like, oh, it's too bad. You don't know anyone who wrote a book on this. I mean, he's dedicated (laughs) their life. And I mean, he's just, you know, but, but it's, it's still hard. And, um, you know, and even just recently had to navigate some real, um, emotional resistance to wanting to have what could end up being a volatile conversation. And, and I think, but, but, but that said, I'm, um, having the tools and then having the courage to know that regardless of how the other person reacts, I can control me And whatever pain hopefully will be temporary, like hopefully it won't cause trauma, but sometimes it might. And so I think that in this journey for me, I've developed some, a greater sense of self efficacy of, of being able to, to heal from those moments, to be able to step into those. And I've, you know, and, 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 you know, unfortunately when you, when you write a book like this. You don't get to avoid like you used to because I mean you you can I mean and I and, and and to be clear I think there are times when we can we can and we should choose to not engage that we can consciously avoid right which is different than reactively avoiding but like but but there are times where I go damn it I've got <laughs> I know I have to have this conversation because this is an opportunity to practice what I preach but. It's still hard because so much of my upbringing, so much of my wiring, if you will, especially as a woman, um, was to keep the peace and to keep things uh, in harmony and to not stir the pot and don't, right, don't poke the bear, so to speak. And, um, and so there's still moments where I have to, I have to call up my courage to say this is worth it. It's worth, like they deserve this or I deserve this or this situation requires this. And to really step into that.
0: Well, and I think you've brought up a really good point, which is a lot of times the books that we write are not just for the others that we get to share in the world. They're oh no, this book for was ourselves. for myself, right? Hundred percent,
1: hundred percent.
0: Books for ourselves too, and we can go back and read and say, "Wow, I love what I said there. I think I'm going to actually apply what what I I wrote there, because um, it was coming from your most resourceful self. And as being humans who are perfectly imperfect. There are going to be times where there are a lot of emotions that come up in discomfort, and sometimes it's easier to not have to be with (laughs) Mm the discomfort Mm -hmm. and and go in other directions, and that's okay because you're
1: human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no shame in it. I never want anyone to feel shame, but to just like, but I do want people to see and to notice and to name. Well, where am I at? Am I okay that this is where I'm at? And to come from a place of choice, instead of you know, it's it's that. You know, we talk about this in the book, the difference between resignation versus acceptance, I think is one of being powerless versus coming from a place of power of, I can't change this situation, so I'm going to choose to show up in a way that will best serve me, even, you know, even if I don't like it, Um, but yeah.
0: Well, I love what was um, coming up for me. As you say, that is exactly what you're around. The choice is that there's even a power in knowing that it's the choice that you're making. You don't necessarily want to be making that choice, but you mm-hmm. can fully acknowledge. I remember talking to a client about that, who was just recognizing how powerful it is when she's getting sleep and she got to sure. experience it. We had our spring break. And so the whole week she was getting sleep and she just saw how it impacted everything mm-hmm. at work. Mm-hmm. And she recognized that she would like to commit to that, but she's not ready to commit to what that looks like in terms of not spending three hours in the evening and, um, being conscious around having white space in the calendar. But what that ended up doing is creating a catalyst of, okay, so I know I'm making this choice. I recognize that I am in choice. And right now I'm committing to not giving myself and the sleep okay, we, we see what's happening here. And what does it look like to perhaps take some baby steps because it mm-hmm. is, it really feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think that's so important what you're saying around choice, just acknowledging that mm-hmm. you're committed to that particular choice right now already gives you more power in that situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know that it was, uh, I, I worked with, with somebody once who was, who was a few years removed from, uh, um, divorce, and still had just like a lot of anger. And, you know, that's not for me to judge or for me to say what's appropriate for her to feel or not. And she, you know, and she just said, I'm not ready to let this go. And it's like, okay, like, what does it look like to come from a conscious place? And that again, in a way that will serve you. And yeah, because we spend so much of our time on autopilot and, um, and sometimes that autopilot serves us. And sometimes that autopilot doesn't serve us. Right. You know, like when we think about if you're, if you're an avoider, that, that there are times when that does serve us. That's why we do that. And then there are times when it doesn't. And how can we start to pay attention and slow down enough to go, am I okay? Am I really okay with this? Am I okay not committing? And in a strange way, you know, when I think about the story you shared, it's like, and what does it feel like to say out loud that I'm choosing to work long hours at night instead of Uh, taking care of myself. Even the act of saying that out loud is really powerful.
0: And and that's exactly what happened, right? She was able to acknowledge, Oh, I'm, I'm making this choice. And I don't think I'm that comfortable with this choice and what needs to change. And Mm -hmm. So tell me about, um, I know there is a deliberate reason that you chose elephants when you were Mm -hmm. talking about this and the language of of all of that. And um, I'm curious, just to let listeners know a little bit more around what was the the thinking behind using elephants um, for the different things. And and then I want to learn a little bit more around what are some of those different types of elephants that show up in our lives? And yeah,
1: no, absolutely. It, it, again, it, it comes from that metaphor, of the elephant in the room. And, and because that was such a, that was a concept I had never heard and wasn't familiar with when I was younger in my career. And when I had read the book, of The Adaptive Leadership, and they talked about, I mean, or I had heard it, but I hadn't really spent time, you know, thinking about it. But, you know, when they said one of the number one characteristics of an adaptive culture is one where elephants can be called out. that I mean, that was the start of that. But, but then part of that journey was, um, not just not just oh how do we how do we how do we call them out I found myself realizing that I think that language is too aggressive sometimes depending on the situation because if there's an elephant in the room that likely means there's emotional heat already there because we're avoiding something and I don't want to I don't want to add aggressive language on onto it not not that like it's always okay like, hey, we need to call this out that's different than like we got to call it out and people are punching there and it's like oh no let's not Turn up like let's turn up the heat, but now let's let's not burn people. But the thing that I I recognized in, in my exploration was at least at least for, for me was clarifying how how often, you know, when, when we think about the elephant in the room, t- typically and traditionally it's applied to a person or right, the situation, you know, that you point at your boss and go, oh I've got an elephant in the room. But, but the reality is, is that if I have an issue with you, let's, well, let's reverse it. Let's say you have an issue with me or there's something that happened that was harmful or we disagreed and we needed to talk about it. Um, if you come talk to me, then there's no elephant. And so then I was like, well, the elephant can't be the person because if we have the conversation, then no. So then what, what creates the elephant? And that, that, then that started my journey of, well, what actually creates the elephant? Oh, our avoidance. Oh, let's understand that. And, and then, then it was just fun to, and not only fun, but it was insightful to explore this idea of, well, how are elephants created? Well, we feed them. Interesting. What are the ways in which we feed the elephant? And, why, and what are the ways that we invite it into the room? Oh, we talked to the wrong person. We, you know, we're passive aggressive. We um, don't advocate for things. We, you know, like the list goes on and on. And so by playing with the metaphor, it, it actually gave this beautiful life to explore it in this very, very different, different way, instead of just the traditional belief. Because again, if we have an issue or if somebody is doing something that is problematic and we talk about it, that person's not the elephant. They're just, you know, they're like, they're doing something problem. Like there's a conflict there, but the conflict isn't the same as the elephant. The elephant is our avoidance. And that, that was a powerful like realization for me to go, oh, not just how do I have the conversations, but how do I own the ways that I'm contributing to this existing in our, in our team? And so, so then that just, you know, the the metaphor expanded. And I, you know, I, I wish, boy, do I wish that I remembered how how or what the evolution was of coming up with elephant types. Like I don't, rem- it was just such an organ. I mean, because again, I've been thinking about this and, and playing with it and experimenting for 13 years now, I guess. But um, but this idea of giving people language to see the avoidance differently, right? So we talk in the book, we cover five kind of common types of elephants, right? The avoidant, which is the most common and kind of the main genus species, right? Like, And then, and then the imagifant. we're imagining something, we're making a story up, which may or may not be true, but that story is causing us to avoid confirming or acknowledging or addressing. And I I just want to say something real quick. Sometimes I, I think we get so focused that there always needs to be a conversation or a confrontation to free an elephant, but sometimes the conversation just needs to be with ourselves. Sometimes it's just acknowledging and addressing for ourselves and realizing, oh, Kristen and I are just different. We have different values. Oh, OK. Poof. And now the elephant is gone because I'm not avoiding anything. I've gotten clarity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so we we talk about a whole whole, whole host. And, and what's fun, I will say, is... Uh, in sessions, people will come up with their own. <laughs> and I, and I love that because again, they're looking at their situation and owning it. And in, and even though we lose use sort of uh, we use some lighthearted language, it's, it's not, it's not intended to dismiss or minimize the light, like to make it lightweight um, but it's to make it easier for us to go, you know, just recently in a book, book club discussion last week, somebody was like, I think I discovered the, the ego event. And I said, well, <laughs> tell me more. And she said, you know, when I have an idea and somebody is like, no, we're not going to do that. I realize I'll just shut down because my ego has been hurt. And then I I will disengage from the conversation and avoid talking or sharing anything or, you know, or we we laughed in my family. I'm like, did we just discover the pretend event? We're just gonna pretend that that situation <laughs> didn't happen. Like, is that what we're doing right now? So yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I love and, and you said too. Like, and it's so true. Is when you do some of that language, it can be disarming and invites people in to have mm-hmm. these conversations. And and we can also add a little fun and playful too. Um, I find sometimes we get so into adulting that Mm. we are, we can't, Mm. we're not having any fun or making it playful. And so then we don't give ourselves that space and permission to be able to fall down, make mistakes, experiment. I mean, go, go to a school for an hour and watch those little five-year-olds and seven-year-olds just like there's a, there's an openness to failing Mm. and falling and trying things over and over and over again. So I, I think your language also, invites in that that ability to explore and be playful and experiment which i think is really really
1: important for this kind of work. Yeah. Well, and and there's something and there's something about having some shared language. Yeah. You know, even even just the idea of the elephant, you know, when i'm working with a team and there's a sense that we're going to be doing some deeper work, i'll even bring in a physical uh, elephant into the room, and 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 that's not to say that people would always use those terms, but even the act of saying, "I think we have an elephant in the room," I, I have an elephant I'd like to free. It cues everyone else in to go. This is important. This is something that we haven't talked about, and we need to talk about. And 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 hopefully it also cues people into going. And this person who's addressing it is stepping into courage. So how do we create a space to make it safe for them to do that?
0: Yeah. And I think that's an important part of the work that you're doing when it comes to psychological safety, because in order for those courageous conversations to happen, people have to feel like they're safe. And Mm -hmm. what I've seen sometimes in organizations is there is so much toxic behavior that it doesn't feel like a safe environment. There've been so many microaggressions Mm
1: -hmm. that they're
0: not going to speak up because they know it's they've experienced even when they have spoken up that it didn't land well and there was repercussions for them. And so what, what do organizations need to be aware of? I'd say, I I'd like to take this from both perspectives. What does the individual need to be avail- aware of when it comes to psychological safety? And what does the organization need to be aware
1: of in terms of creating it? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, so speaking to the individual level, you know, every time that somebody says, hey, Sarah, what about this situation? My response is almost always the same. It depends. It, it just depends. It depends on well, what's your relationship with this person? What what has been their consistency of behavior before? How what's the risk you're willing to take in this situation? I mean, there's a whole variety of, of factors. And it's not, it's not my intention to deflect, but the reality is it just it shows the complexity that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, even this, even even the, you know, our big advocacy of being more curious, it can't be a prescription. It has to be, you know, there are times when it's not appropriate. There are times when I wouldn't ask somebody to get curious about someone who's created harm to them. That's not when we would apply it. And so how do we understand the nuance and the complexity and at an individual level, you know, again, to be really clear about, Uh, how you know what's the impact I want to try to make am I okay with the consequences if there are some because we know that even though many people and I would argue most people believe they're open believe they're willing to accept feedback and we know that that's just we're humans and there are times when we aren't skilled in those areas and and so as an individual to be okay with like there may be a cost to having this conversation and that might be worth it you know and, and, and so then what can I do? From an organizational perspective, I feel like there's so like almost too much training. Well, let me take that back. There's still not enough even in that area. But what I was going to say is that sometimes I think we focus so much on, on how to give feedback, how to have the hard conversation. So we don't spend enough time on how to receive it mm-hmm. and to understand and to get curious with What are the ways, you know, we talk about psychological safety. One of the questions that I think is so important, whether it's as a leader or an organization is not, do I create a psychologically safe environment or don't I? I think the more important question is, what do I do that actually gets in the way? Mm -hmm. What, what do we do as an organization that's not, and, you know, and psychologically safe for who, like who gets, who gets to feel safe? And those are hard questions, but when we can create, you know, we're we've seen it, and it's and it is funny because even in the process of writing this, I go, you know, realizing that some of this won't matter if the person on the receiving end doesn't know how to receive it, which is why we spent a couple chapters digging into. And maybe it felt there was some maybe redundancy there, but I wanted to really hit it home of how you receive the elephant is what actually has the biggest impact on what kind of culture we create related to being able to talk about the hard stuff. Because if somebody is equipped and can approach me in a way that is, you know, respectful, but maybe still direct, and I can't receive that in any kind of shape or form, then I've severed that possibility from us being able to have those kind of conversations in the future.
0: Yeah. And I think it really speaks to the importance of the emotional intelligence. And um, you did a great job about talking about it in lots of different areas in the book and even understanding what goes on for us, right? Those ways that we get triggered and our um, fight, flight, freeze. And then I like you use fawn. I've used, I've heard a couple of other um, languages. Like Yeah. Yeah. Those ways that we, um, what we do when, when the amygdala goes and that you're feeling unsafe and recognizing Um, that's a lot of work, right? It's uh it you know, it's interesting. And I I think the part that's so fascinating around this work is as individuals, as humans transform, it doesn't just transform how they're showing up in their organizations as leaders. It Mm. shows it transforms how they're showing up as partners, as parents, as aunts, uncles, uh, how they're showing up in their community, like all of those relationships. Mm. And you know, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Like, if if we're if we're all willing to do the work, and our organizations are a great place to do it, we can experience so much healing from many things that have happened for over the years from that conditioning and and those ways that we were triggered. And so, to me, um, I love that you speak about that because it's the individual, and of course, like those times that that feedback's coming, that person could be saying, and that is triggering. Feedback mm-hmm. that you got from your teacher back in grade two that mm-hmm. said you're stupid, right? And, but they don't right. realize at the time right. that's
1: what's actually happening there. <laughs> so, I mean, so much, so much of how we are conditioned to respond and so much of our experience comes from our childhood. That's why, uh, you know, my dear colleague, Farah Harris, who she's working on her book, The Color of Emotional Intelligence. And I know in her practice, she's really passionate about helping people understand their origin story what is your origin story when it comes to thinking about your emotions, thinking about how do you respond to feedback? You know, what stories were you told? You know, even, even if it's, you know, um, you know, like I come from incredibly, my parents are super protective. They're right. Like mama bear, papa bear. And, and, you know, and some, of some of, <laughs> just recently, you know, like you know, you always get, there's always one or two people when I get feedback, right. In a presentation that I'm just not the right person for them. And they'll go into like, kind of justifying or explaining like, well, they're probably just, you know, like, and it's like, no, that's okay. I'm okay that they, I'm okay that I wasn't the right fit for them, but you know, like we're, we're conditioned in lots of different ways and, and just being, you know, and the thing, the thing with the amygdala and why I'm so passionate about people understanding that, that primitive response is because, So often I hear people say things that essentially are, how do we get rid of it? And you, you can't, you, you, you just can't get rid of it, but we can, um, we can learn to identify it faster. We can learn to work through it more quickly, right? We can name it to go, Ooh, this, this triggered it. I need to sit with this. And then in your example, boy, we're, what is it about this? genuinely that is like so triggering to me and not from a place of blaming them, but you know what, and maybe some accountability needs to happen in some situations for sure. But, but that being able to, to notice it, catch it and then work through it. That's the goal is to work through it more quickly in a way that's more productive for, for you and for the relationship and the situation because I think, I think that what I see is that people will get frustrated. They get frustrated when they have that reaction, or they get frustrated when someone else has that reaction. And even as somebody who's gone to therapy for many years and who is very tuned, I am very tuned in to, to my physical and emotional responses. There are times I can't stop the train, but I can try to say, Hey, I'm on a train right now. And I need to, I need some time to, to, to pause and to to sort of like get into a better headspace um, so we can have this conversation. And I don't know, I'd be curious to know how does that show up in your work?
0: Yeah, I think what you said there's really important is um, giving yourself permission and having the language to communicate your needs. And I think it comes down mm-hmm. a lot to needs too, right? So absolutely. The um, <laughs> I hear the same thing in terms of the biological response. And It's like, well, that's happening. It's actually created to protect you. And so your nervous system is going to still do that. But what can you do Mm -hmm. to calm yourself, to have the self-soothing, to have those different ways that you're regulating? And sometimes it can even be co-regulation, right? I do co-regulation with my nine-year-old all the time. And I'm actually recognizing the ways I can actually even co-regulate with my husband when I'm noticing he's triggering, just putting a hand on his back or doing something Mm. to give him a hug in that moment. Um, But what I, I was kind of smiling as you were saying that as well, Sarah, because it's also making me think of what I see often in my practice as well. And I I will sometimes use the word saboteur, self-limiting beliefs, inner narrative. Mm. And the same thing, they'll be like, well, this cannot happen anymore. I want to annihilate it. (laughs) I want to attack it. I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to welcome it in. We're going to be curious. We're going to be loving that's a part of you that's looking to be seen and to have some attention. And so what I see consistently um, that I I would like to encourage everybody listening right now is to tap into some self-compassion. It's that self-compassion because it's recognizing that that's happening. And if you would give yourself a little bit of space, to ask yourself what's going on and what might be what you might need in that moment, or with that other individual, what they might be needing. Um, wow, how how much things can change, and that's something I've seen, especially even over the two years of the pandemic. Um, so many leaders that were filled with compassion and empathy for others, but were not 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 having that same self compassion for themselves mm. and those. Um, expectations that were just unrealistic expectations for themselves.
1: Yeah. And that, and those unrealistic expectations can cause unnecessary suffering because, because again, that's, that's part of our, it's part of how we're designed. Doubt is part of our design, right? That, that amygdala response is part of our design for survival. And, you know, as you were talking, it made me think about a conversation quite a few years ago now, but I, I'm, I, you know, as, as you and I spoke before we hopped on, I'm very passionate about mental health. And, uh, you know, I guess nine years ago now I was diagnosed with panic disorder. And I, and I had a leader uh, come up to me and he said, he was sharing his own experience. And he said, how did you cure it? And I was like, oh, I, I just have a different relationship with it now. Like it's a part of who I am. And it's the same thing with those voices of doubt. And and how do we, you know, but I love that, that language of just like, how do we be loving with it? How do we, how do we hold it a little bit more gently to say, and even, and even, you know, thinking about times where, you know, going back to having a difficult conversation if, if this relationship is important or if something's on the line, then it makes sense that there would be some discomfort because there's a risk you're taking. It would, if in, and that's to me, that part of that is, that's just an indicator. It's an indicator that this matters. It's an indicator that I'm pushing my edge, right? I'm pushing my comfort zone, even if that is You know, I'm coming from a place of advocacy and standing up for myself or standing up for someone else. And, and that's, I mean, it's just, it's like, so how do we, how do we use the indicators differently instead of having them paralyze us? And, and again, I mean, I think that's because it's such a common, it's such a common um, question I get is, well, how do I, I want to, I want to be able to have this conversation calmly and I, and I don't want to be uncomfortable It's like, well, you just, you might not be able to, you might be able to do it more effectively, but you may never be able to remove the doubt. You may never be able to remove entirely, but, you know, but we can come at it from a greater place of courage and and confidence but I can be confident and, you know, like I can, I can be scared and do it anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it's the yeah. duality to also recognize you can have, it's reminding me of Susan David, um, her, her Ted talk, which I love. And she talks about discomfort is the price of admission, right? To be human mm. is to feel, to mm. feel, that full, full range of emotions. And I think it's also even how you label it, right? I talk about a lot of the work I'll be doing with individuals is they're having to go up and, and use their voice, whether that's, uh, you know, speaking in a meeting, speaking on a stage, lots of different ways where they're having that confidence. And I said, listen, to this day, I still get all the butterflies and all the juices as I'm going mm-hmm. up, but it's how I label it. I'm scarce sighted. Mm-hmm. I'm about to become a al- lot. I'm going to be alive. Like I'm mm-hmm. about to go on that stage and connect. To from my most authentic self and have a human experience with a bunch of people, of course the adrenaline's going because I'm alive, right? And so yeah. I don't label it as, oh my God, I'm scared. I shouldn't feel this way. There's a, so I think it's even labeling it as, uh, uh, yeah, you're alive in that conversation. Like there's a part of you that's, this matters to you and it's important. So there is going to be some scare sighted. There is going to be some, um both, uh, you know, a little bit of fear, but also some, perhaps some anticipation around the possibilities of where this conversation can mm-hmm. lead
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah I call it you know when you talk about speaking I call it creative tension yeah you know that's just my creative tension that's just you know and and, and that becomes and again that's an important part of of when we can see something differently when we can name it differently then we react to it differently You know, and it doesn't remove it necessarily. We just, again, we have a different relationship with it. And I I appreciate your language of like, yeah, I'm alive. This is the human experience, and that that's the price of admission. And and honestly, that's the price of admission to having really powerful relationships. That's the price of admission to building psychological safety. I think sometimes when we when people talk about psychological safety, they confuse the word safety for comfort. Well, comfort safety doesn't mean that I won't ever be uncomfortable, but it means that it's safe for me to take those risks, right? That it's safe for me to sit in that discomfort. It's safe for me to navigate the heat with you. And even though I know we'll come out the other side, you know, in the, in the best of relationships, when I think about my personal life, the best of relationships, um, I, there's a confidence of, I know we'll get to the other side. Okay. And It's going to be a little messy and uncomfortable getting there, but I'm because of the relationship we've built or the psychological safety that we have that, um, that we'll be able to sit in the discomfort together. Right. And so I think sometimes that's that, 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 that word safety, uh, unfortunately some people interpret as comfortable and it's like, well, no, that's, that's not, no, yeah, that's different.
0: Yes, I think that's an important distinction, right? So then people are understanding, okay, it's like getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if yeah. you can do that, right? It's like, what does it look like to just recognize, know it's there, um, witness it, honor it, and then give yourself that space to be able to take action from it. Um, so Sarah, when you think about all of this amazing work that you're doing with organizations, if I could give you a magic wand and I said, okay, you get to use the magic wands. What would you like to see more of an organization? Where are the possibilities? Mm.
1: I think so much could be solved by people who are in positions of power and authority to truly care for the people they serve, to know how to show, to listen. I mean, it's the human side of things. We've figured out the profit. We've, we're have we figuring out the productivity. Like that's, the, but the problem is those have all been done at a cost to the human. And so, and, and part of this is when I think about the organizations that um, we've been really fortunate to support that I have witnessed and I use that word witnessed what's possible when there is deep care, when there's deep empathy, when there's people truly can be themselves, it's remarkable. And, and it's not just what they can produce or create, but it's also just what they, the experience they're creating. And and going back to the point that you made earlier that I want to just echo and second and believe is we, when we can show up more powerfully at work and when we can work in a space where we can be our true authentic selves, So when we can feel really good about the work we're doing, we take that home with us. Just like when it's bad, when it's toxic, we take that home with us as well. And so, so I think the magic wand for me would be that the people who have, you know, and, and everyone in the workplace. So I'm, I'm kind of pointing to the people who are in positions of power and authority because they have a huge influence. Is to really assess and reflect on how are they showing up for their people, and how could they show up even more powerfully? Because there's a whole lot of suffering. There's a whole lot of suffering in the workforce, and and a lot of trauma that you just sit there and go, boy, how is this still the norm? How is it? Why am I still hearing stories of leaders slamming their door or throwing a chair? Like how is that still acceptable? Yeah. In 2022.
0: Yeah, yeah. You and I were talking about that before the the conversation, right? Or the screaming and yelling on a a phone call, and that is it's not, there's just, you, you kind of feel like there's so much evidence to show. There's been so much education. You're like, are you, right. where Where are you when this education's right. happening? Are you like closed off and not hearing anything? Not, <laughs> but I think you described it well. It's the, it's the trauma piece. And so they, they need to get that help in order to feel, be able to have the tools that they need to have in their toolkit to be able to have better conversations. But m- what I continue to say is, you other individuals in that organization also get to be the advocates and they also get to speak up and say, I'm not mm-hmm. tolerating this anymore. Like mm-hmm. this is not acceptable and this needs to change. I, you know, I, I still see organizations where they have the, the, the top performer in that they're getting results at such a, such an expensive cost to the organization. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. losing people. They're behaving in a way that's completely unacceptable. I I call it, um, Adam Grant talks about the brilliant a-hole, yeah. or it was either, I, mm. I think Adam brilliant Grant shirts. and Simon Sinek have both talked about it, but they say like, everyone can go into the organization and ask who's the brilliant asshole. And everyone will point out and know who that person is. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to say, it's not cool. It's not acceptable. That person mm-hmm. needs to either do something to change their behavior or be out of the organization. Because when you're tolerating those behaviors, you're sending a very strong message to everybody else in that organization.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, It's, you know, it's what and I'll I'll push back on, on leaders sometimes or companies is I know you say you value this, but actually what I am observing is you, you prioritize and what you're sending the message is you value, you know, you value X, right? You value just being hyper disrespectful, you value, um, you know, I don't know, working people past their capacity. Like that's actually what you, you know, what you, your espoused values. I don't really care what you say you value. I'm interested in what are the hidden values? What are the things you actually give your time space or tolerate? And when, and when we tolerate that's sending a message too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when you think of inspirational leadership, the name of this show, it's to me, it's around those behaviors. What mm. do you think an in inspirational leader is what are they bringing and how are they showing up?
1: And mm. when I think of people who I either have had the pleasure of working for or working with that, I would describe as inspirational. I think that the, some of the behaviors and practices are, um, just, um, a learning mindset. You know, these are people who know they don't have it all figured out. Um, they're people who show up authentically in a way that is not authentically a jerk (laughs) because if you're, if that's your authentic self, then let's, but you shouldn't be in leadership. But, um, but, and, and people who, who understand that you're, your core job as a leader is to eventually become irrelevant is to set up those people around you to be so successful that they don't need you anymore, that someone else doesn't need you so that they can be their best self and you can go on and do your best work or whatever that looks like. And so that, you know, when I think of the people who are inspirational, it's not how much money they brought in. It's not the profits that they turned around. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, um, impressed right when people are like i did created this much like i how many bodies did you leave right. like what was the cost to get there but it's people who you know who understand that the the power of the humans and are willing to understand right the complexity of the humans and and are really committed to how do how do i do what's right for for you and how do we do that in a way that will serve everyone um because obviously a business needs to make money. I I get that. I'm not saying, you know, but we can, we can do it in far different and better ways than we've been doing it for sure.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. I never want these conversations to end, but they do. And so, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to leave whatever is showing up for you as a final thought Mm -hmm. with the audience.
1: I appreciate that. I, I'm just I'm sitting in gratitude right now to have this conversation with you, to finally have met, and get a chance, and to have them, and also just gratitude of, oh, she's who I was hoping she was going to be, and to be in conversation with you. So that's that's what I'm holding on to right now.
0: Uh, I'm feeling that too, and my heart is is feeling very full. Where can people learn more about you, Sarah, and your work and your book?
1: Yeah, they can connect with us uh, at our website, It's I have an incredible team that I get to work with and we're all very committed to how do we make the workplace work better for people and um, and also social media that you can find me on all the major platforms. My DMs are always open. So if somebody's curious about something, they can certainly reach out and I'll do my best to to connect in a timely manner.
0: Amazing. And we'll have all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here today, Sarah. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. The pleasure was all mine. And to everybody, wherever you are in the world, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We're sending you tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.